Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, one meaning of corona is halo of light. So together, let's find the silver lining in this pandemic. And while normally we're heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Today's return guest will be the uh, inimitable Dr. Eustace Fernandez with an update from the intensive care unit where he is treating COVID-19 pneumonia patients with a tremendous staff. He is a philosopher, pulmonologist, critical care physician, father, Eustace, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, I think by philosophy, you're probably confusing me with my brother, Ashley. But, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm really glad to be back. And, and again, uh, I just want to say that I'm, I'm uh, glad to be with you, uh, sharing my experiences as a physician, in no way speaking on behalf of, uh, of my institution. Yes. Yes, you're speaking as the wonderful individual you are. So, wonderful individual, in the last two weeks since we spoke to you, what new things have you learned about COVID-19? So, so new things I've learned um, revolve around the preparatory care of a patient with COVID-19. So by that, I mean the things we as, as doctors, nurses, uh, patient care techs, respiratory therapists, are learning about how to take care of these patients. So things that we used to take for granted, how we enter a room, how we take off our gown and gloves, um, is sort of being reinvented, re-examined. Um, we're looking at these things with the eyes towards taking really good care of the patient, um, but also not contaminating self and thus removing ourselves from the workforce with illness or the worry of self-contamination. Simple procedures uh, that we used to think about in, in almost a uh, perfunctory manner in the ICU. How do we put a breathing tube down? Or more importantly, how do we take a breathing tube out in a COVID-19 patient as opposed to a, a, any other intensive care unit patient? Has to be rethought of and, um, and reimagined to create the most safe way to do uh, that procedure, which normally... Uh, takes about 30 seconds of prep. Now it's taking a lot of mental legwork and then actual planning to limit the number of people in the room, um, to make sure we have all the right supplies in the room. And it's, it's a whole new world. Um, we've, had, we've been blessed to have a lot of input from surgical colleagues and ear, nose, and throat specialists and, and lots of people working on this to try and come up with um, a, a best practice for things that people really don't know what the best practice is. Um, and, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, I was very happy to remove breathing tubes from two COVID-19 patients uh, in the last week. Oh, and, thanks be to God. Yeah, and, and, but removal of that breathing tube was such a, uh, such a pulse-pounding experience for me, and I never thought it would be. Um, in my career. Removal Sounds like the uh, on, the, on movies when we see people diffusing a bomb. Is that what you felt like? The bomb squad? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to be too melodramatic about it, but it, it's, a, it's a little bit like that because, you know, the, the nurse and the respiratory therapist were looking at me. So, hey, Dr. Fernandez, how do you want to do this? And I'm like, I don't know. I've never done this before. Let's, uh, let's cut the blue wire. You know, it's, um, it's one of those things. It's, it's interesting because that's something you've probably done thousands of times in your career. 
And now, do you think this is something that's going to be changed forever going forward, COVID and non-COVID? I mean, are we kind of relooking at the way we we provide that type of care in the hospital? Well, I think, you know, what I, what I said previously is that the care of the COVID patient involves good medicine. It involves good supportive care and, uh, and careful care. So I think in the pre-COVID area, era, I was a slob in terms of putting on my PPE <laughs> and, you know, dragging this from one room to the next. And, and it, was, it was not a good practice. And, and for me, it's caused me to re-examine that with every patient, not just COVID patients. So if it, if it causes people like me to have a reawakening and, and to be more conscientious about how I enter and exit a room, how meticulous I am with hand washing, um, I think that that's a good thing. Um, I think one aspect of it that, that is a little concerning is that, is that what, we're, what we're finding is that for healthcare workers who become infected, it, it becomes a function of a couple different things. Number one, uh, what your PPE is, number two, how much time you're actually spending in the room, and number three, what the inoculum or the bolus of virus you're actually inhaling is that determines whether or not you get infected. So the one piece of that that I don't like is the time factor, because a lot of us, um, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, techs, um, pride ourselves on spending time with our patients, face-to-face -face time, I'm being present to you, um, I'm listening, I'm sitting at the bedside, I'm touching you. And those things are, are the, the post-COVID um, practices that, that feel really unnatural. And I, I hope we find a way um, to find a balance there because th those are things in medicine that, that many of us are unaccustomed to and, and not spending time with our patients, not having a tactile um, relationship with the patient is, is difficult. I think that's going to be one of the biggest debates in the medical community going forward because, you know, patient satisfaction with the interaction has so much to do with time and presence. I mean, that's one of the first things you learn in medical school. You want to touch every patient with the physical exam. And I mean, even extending this outside of medicine, I heard Dr. Fauci commenting like, maybe we're not going to shake hands anymore. And in my mind, I right. think we really lose some humanity in our daily life that way. And so how to strike that balance, I think that's going to be a big item of debate going forward. Well, something I just read on one of the sports websites, you know, regarding the handshaking thing, is how many sports fans, avid baseball fans, would be willing to go to a baseball park this summer for a game? And it was less than one third. Wow. So I think wow. things are wow. going to change. Uh, Eustace, yeah. two weeks ago, we talked about uh, something that this disease causes called cytokine storm, which is really the body's very strong response against the virus, but it can cause what you called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Have you seen the incidence of that increase or decrease, especially since last show you mentioned that you were trying to give Plaquenil a pill to patients to try to prevent this from happening? Yeah, so I think, you know, when we um, see the patients and they come to the intensive care unit where I've been working, um, many, so, some of them are at the beginning of their disease arc. So their work of breathing is increased, their x-ray looks kind of bad, they're requiring a couple liters of oxygen. But the majority of patients we're seeing in the ICU are already on an accelerated path. So I believe that most of the patients that we are seeing in the intensive care unit have already accelerated 
Okay. And we check different inflammatory markers to see is a cytokine storm happening, and and it seems well underway by the time we get them. Got now it. that being said, I'm I'm still treating them uh, with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin to help to blunt the severity of that immune response. And and then there we've we've given um, a drug called Actemra, which is a uh, interleukin six inhibitor, to several. Uh, patients with with decent clinical outcomes. Um, there's another uh, drug out um, called remdesivir, which uh, which was there's a paper published I think yesterday in the New England Journal which showed that about a 68 percent um, treatment response to the um, to uh, this drug remdesivir, which was uh, previously tried in Ebola. Um, and so that drug is not readily available. Um, it's a compassionate use drug and, and in multiple clinical trials. So, so there are things that are, are out there um, which may help. And, and, you know, an Israeli group just published uh, um, or publicized a, a trial of 10 patients with severe lung injury where they gave um, uh, placental stem cells. So not embryonic ah. stem cells, placental stem cells. And they report 100% survival, which is, which is a little hard to believe, but um, hopefully more data will come. Oh, that's phenomenal to know, Eustace. So last time, as you did at the beginning of this episode, you emphasized the importance of supportive care. Do you think that any of these other treatments are increasing the number of patients who survive? I think it's too soon to say. I, I really do. It's, it's, I think our experience isn't broad enough. We don't know because we're not, it, it's sort of like the wild west of medicine where People, as you hear, you know, okay, so hydroxychloroquine, then hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, you hear remdesivir, you hear um, uh, convalescent plasma, and then, and then you hear weird things like uh, ivermectin, which is an antiparasitic drug, uh, and people talking about its activity in vitro, um, which means in the test tube. And then um, one, of, uh, one of my old instructors, Dr. Paul Merrick, um, is, is a big proponent of using high-dose vitamins as a as a scavenger of some of these um, of these stressors on the body, so high dose vitamin C, thiamine, zinc, uh, low dose and slow release melatonin. That's part of their protocol. is uh, is to use these potent anti-inflammatory vitamins uh, to tamp down um, the abnormal immune response. So it's kind of the wild west of medicine, and we don't really know what works and to what extent. What we do know is supporting the breathing when the body can no longer breathe ensuring appropriate nutrition for their disease state, making sure the skin say, stays intact when they're highly immobilized, make sure that uh, you know, the, the brain continues to work by using minimal doses of sedatives if we can, and mobilizing some of these patients, even ones on a ventilator. I'm sitting them up on the edge of the bed doing range of motion exercises to maintain their strength. So all of that stuff we know works. The other stuff is out, is out there, and, and we, we need to continue to explore that as well. What you know, one, oh, one, one of the things that I get asked a lot about uh, COVID is what of these things that are making the news cycles can patients do at home? You know, whether it be the high dose vitamins or everybody's trying to get their hands on a Z pack and this and that. And, you know, in, in medical school, they always teach you about half of what you know is going to be obsolete in 10 years. I have a feeling that the hit rate with this is going to be even lower. Um, do you have any advice for people who are afraid of getting COVID besides stay at home, don't smoke and wash your hands? 
or just kind of the common sense stuff is what we should be focusing on? Yeah, I think common sense stuff makes the most sense, right? Good hand washing, avoiding people who are sick, eating whole foods, foods as close to their natural form as possible. Um, I think vitamin C and thiamine probably have, have some benefit, making sure you're getting adequate sleep so that the body's immune system is not, is not under stress. Um, and then appropriate stress management with things, uh, of course, like prayer um, and good conversations with people at, at six feet distance. Um, and, uh, and, uh, moderate exercise. I think all of those things are important. Um, and gratitude, finding three things to say out loud each day you're thankful for, no matter how small. This is something that sure. my co-host Andrew often brings up. For sure. I do. I love the gratitude, the gratitude <laughs> journals as, as some people describe them. Right, right. And Eustace, I wondered if you could give us some insight into this proning that we've seen in the secular media. Yeah, um, proning refers to taking a patient who is usually on a ventilator and moving them from their back, uh, which is the normal position of a patient on a ventilator, to their stomach. Now, that seems to help for a number of reasons, but basically every air sac has a blood vessel that accompanies it. And in a perfect world, there's one blood, sa uh, a blood vessel for every air sac. Um, when you have COVID-19 infection, we think that the lung is directly affected, so those air sacs are full of infection and inflammation. And we also think that some of the blood vessels may be compromised by small blood clots within those blood vessels. So we believe that putting the patient onto their stomach for up to 16 hours can improve those relationships and allow healthy air sacs to communicate with healthy blood vessels. Some centers are actually doing this with non-intubated patients and at least anecdotally, seems to be helpful. So Eustace, I've heard different numbers of uh, patients who go on a ventilator that are expected to come off the ventilator alive. What's the latest on what percentage of patients survive post-ventilator? Well, it's really all over the place. Like if you look at the initial data coming out of China, you would think that almost nobody um, sure. could survive once they were on a ventilator. Italy was similar data. Um, we are seeing a reasonable number of patients come off the ventilator. Um, I would say it's probably, you know, in the range of 40 to 50% are, are, are coming off, um, but it's still too soon to say. I think it's, you know, there was a lot of concern about if the prognosis is really this bad, should patients like this even be put on ventilators to start because their prognosis is so bad. And I, I think that that's a little bit of dangerous thinking because we don't know yet. We really don't know um, the factors that lead to somebody doing well on a ventilator, uh, needing a prolonged uh, run on a ventilator, or ultimately dying on a ventilator. Um, we know that things like age and comorbidities such as heart disease and diabetes seem to be important indicators. We also think that uh, the number of organ systems that one has in failure is predictive of how, what the likelihood is that they will survive. Um, but right now, we're trying to take care of the patient in front of us, give them the best possible care, give them the best chance at survival, and continuing to have active discussions with families every day about how their loved one is doing, what their wishes might be, and whether... Um, you know, the burden of treatment is excessive for the, for the amount of perceptible, benef perceptible benefit to the patient. 
Do, do we have any better idea now as, as far as who are the most high risk patients? I know there's, there's a lot of risk factors and you had mentioned a couple there, or is it still too soon to say that, you know, if someone is, for example, a smoker, their, their odds of, of survival are twice as bad, or do you have any gestalt as to that? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, again, kind of all over the place. We know that men uh, seem to be affected more than women. We think that um, Caucasians more than other, other races. Um, we think that um, patients with heart disease and diabetes and with advanced age um, are probably more likely to have severe disease. We think that patients who, uh, who, are, who are younger, who are not immune normal, so someone who might have received chemotherapy or might have received an immunosuppressing drug for another reason to treat another disease, are more at risk. Um, but, the, you know, we're still playing with the big knobs uh, as far as all that stuff is concerned, and I think we, we are trying to fine-tune it. Um, some of the things we are doing, we talked a little bit earlier about cytokine storms, so what I'm doing with some of my patients in the ICU is, is drawing labs that point to inflammation and then checking them again in a day or two to see if they're trending downwards or upwards. And that gives me a better idea about prognosis because I think mortality or death from this disease is, gonna, is, is really tied to um, the cytokine storm and arresting the cytokine storm at some point. I, I about the use of steroids. I know we had talked about a couple of medications earlier and early on, I saw some literature that said steroids might increase ventilator-associated pneumonia. Is that something you guys are using routinely or not really? So I'm giving steroids if the patient has another reason to need steroids. Um, you know, so let's just say they have really bad asthma and, it, and the COVID-19 has made their asthma flare, then it's reasonable to treat them with steroids. There's concern that if you give steroids early on in the disease course, you may actually increase the viral load and may actually hurt the patient. Um, it's, it's very controversial um, right now. Um, so in China, in their treatment guidelines for ARDS in general, um, they include steroids. And, and there's one paper published out of China that reports mortality benefit. Um, but this is not something that I'm seeing widely adopted um, across our country. And, uh, and I think this, this is one where the jury is still out and uh, the treatment has to be tailored to that specific patient's needs. Eustace, one area where I'm still not seeing data, maybe you have it, is how much more at risk are smokers or those with various pre-existing lung diseases? It's intuitive, it's, but is there data? There's, there's not data yet. So in, in China, for example, um, you know, 50% of men are smokers. Right. 2% uh, of women are smokers. Right. But you, you, don't, you don't see a disproportionate number, a widely disproportionate number of men um, who are uh, getting severe disease um, with this. Certainly more men than women, but not, uh, not in that proportion. Hmm. Um, and, and it turns out that the, the two highest risk factors for death um, appear to be heart disease and, un, and, and diabetes, particularly diabetes that's uncontrolled. And why uh, those with you know, advanced chronic lung disease um, seem to do okay or kind of middle yeah, of the pack is, exactly. is not clear. Okay. Um, when, I've taken, when I've taken care of these patients in the ICU, they don't have a tremendous amount of spasm of the bronchial tubes. They don't have um, things that we sort of are accustomed to seeing and hearing um, in patients uh, with chronic lung disease who end up on ventilators. 
Eustace, something we covered in another episode with other people that I'd like to hear about is, have you had any priests administering sacraments in the ICU? And if so, what's been the response? So thankfully, we haven't, we haven't had the need as yet. Um, the response, um, I think, will, be, will have to be in light of these ideas of social distancing and uh, eliminating um, the... Uh, or, or limiting the number of, of patients uh, exposed to the clergy and the public. So um, I think at our institution, we're taking it on a case-by-case basis. Um, and and uh, I was discussing this yesterday with somebody that, that for a Catholic, uh, seeing a priest at the end of your life is, is uh, the most important thing in the world. Yes. Um, so I think for our patients, we, we would fight hard um, uh, to make that happen. Um, I have a brother, as you know, who is a Catholic priest, Father Earl Fernandez, and, and he's described to me uh, administering um, uh, last rites to a patient who is dying of COVID-19 and the process of um, escorted in, being escorted in, uh, donning PPE, uh, doing most of the, the blessings and prayers from outside the room, entering the room for uh, anointing quickly, and then re- being removed or, or removing himself from the ICU uh, and praying uh, with the families, um, so it's it's a it's a whole new world uh, there. But it's it's one that um, we need to continue uh, to remain focused on. One of the other treatments where there's an ongoing study now, and you briefly mentioned it, is with immune globulin from patients who have recovered. Do you have any more data on that? There really is not any any new data on uh, giving um, uh, convalescent plasma. Uh, so this is the idea that after someone is is out of their illness, out of the woods, you test them um, and make sure that they're not still uh, bearing some degree of viral load, and then you collect antibodies from them, and then you give those back to someone who's who's very ill. Um, there's a small series published from uh, China um, which appeared uh, to be successful, and we're waiting for more data. Uh, our institution, like many other institutions, has enrolled in uh, the Red Cross's uh, database. So the Red Cross is soliciting uh, institutions that are interested in treating pl- patients with convalescent plasma and who also might have patients who could be potential donors. Um, and then you enter this pool, and then that, that resource goes to places where um, it is being given for compassionate use. And, and it turns out that most of those places uh, are, are hot zones like New York. Um, or Louisiana or Chicago. And so we haven't had that much experience locally with that. Yusuf, yesterday the news came out with Eli Lilly, which is a a big manufacturer of pharmaceuticals in Indiana here. Um, They are going to start testing people who are asymptomatic for COVID to try and get an idea of who might be asymptomatic carriers and how, how far this has spread. Is that an antibody or RNA test, Andrew? I, I, be, I don't know for sure, but I believe it's an RNA test. My understanding is that antibody tests are not up and running quite so yet. So it's not a blood test? It's, a, it's, it's not a serology. It's a, it's a regular COVID test. Okay. And that got me thinking because we have some limited testing supplies here, but by the time we get around to testing asymptomatic people, that makes me think that we've probably got to have plenty of testing supplies and we're testing everybody with a sniffle in the hospitals. Has, has that been your experience, Eustace, or are we not there yet? Yeah, I think uh, we are still in a crunch in terms of, uh, 
of having rapid testing and having that rapid testing widely available. So, you know, I was extremely pleased that our institution went online with um, a 45-minute uh, RNA test that's done in-house. And that's going to help us in, in all sorts of ways um, in terms of identifying our patients quickly, triaging them to the appropriate location, minimizing uh, the use of PPE, that personal protective equipment. Um, but those kits, those testing kits, are, are not uh, unlimited in supply. So we're choosing which patients we're testing very, very carefully. Um, but for a day uh, when, you know, it's a, it's, you know, we're all longing for the day when we can test really everybody. We can have sort of a universal testing because yes. right now we know what our case fatality rate is in our county, in our, in our state, in our country. But we don't know what the actual incidence of the disease is. Uh, so we don't know the true mortality. So it's, it's like we know the numerator, but, but we don't know the denominator. Right. And, and in terms of trying to unwrap um, the, uh, the various effects that COVID-19 has had on our society, I think until we get a better handle on what the denominator is. So how many of us have had it? How many of us had, have had it with little to no symptoms? And how many of us have gotten really sick with it? Um, we won't really understand the scope and breadth of this disease and how we enter back into some degree of normalcy. Because the, the sooner that more of us have antibodies, so if there were a lot of asymptomatic people with it, that would be very good news because we would be closer to getting to herd immunity when we can then resume normal social interaction. I think that that's correct. I think that that's correct. Uh, so Eustace, have any of your patients who have been in the ICU with COVID been discharged yet? Yeah. Um, so we've actually discharged um, quite a few uh, patients from the hospital with uh, COVID-19. So How that's, about from that's the ICU? A, from the ICU, um, they're in various states of rehabilitation. So I've moved them from the ICU out to a regular floor and, and we call it, uh, you know, it's uh, being on the launch pad to go home. So what, what, what they have to prove is that they can function at home because if the sooner we can get them out of the hospital to kind of continue self-quarantine and to rehab on their own, uh, the better they'll be. So we've had a couple patients discharged from the ICU uh, for sure and with, with limited um, disability and they need uh, a little bit of one-on-one uh, -on -one physical therapy in the hospital and making sure they have all the things they need at home. And I expect a quick transition back to home where they can get work on getting stronger. So Eustace, for every 100 patients who test positive to the virus, what percent of them do you think end up needing hospitalization? Yeah, so yesterday we looked at this uh, across our county, which is Allen County, and it's going to depend on what the, you know, what the makeup of your community is, of course. Sure. But in, in, in our county, um, about 50% of the patients who are persons under investigation or confirmed COVID-19 get um, admitted to the hospital. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a high number, a higher number. And, um, and I think that some of that might be fear factor that we think someone has this and we're afraid to send them home, um, which is a legitimate fear because people can, you don't know where they are in terms of their disease arc. Are they, are they uh, past the worst of it or are they going to get worse at home and then need to come back? Or you hear stories of people being found um, dead in their homes and, and everybody's a little bit afraid of that. Of those patients who get admitted to the hospital across our county, about 18% end up going uh, to the intensive care unit. Again, not all of those patients need ventilators. Some of them are just moved for closer observation or uh, 
for attempts at arresting the disease before it gets worse. And, um, and so, so that's, you know, I think it, it sort of depends on, on the character of your community. Have, have you seen ahead, a, a major spike in the number of cases at, at your institution? We have seen a increase in volume for sure of patients who are getting admitted with concerns about COVID-19. So in, in my experience, which is, which is not exhaustive in any sense of the word, um, there appear to be two different types, you know, sort of the rapidly accelerating people where you could spot it a mile away. Like you don't even need the test and you know that that person has it just on the basis of their clinical presentation, what their x-rays or CAT scan look like and what their clinical course is. And then there are people who sort of smolder with this and look sick and sickish and sick, certainly sick enough to be in the hospital. Um, and then they're more ambiguous. And those are the people uh, where testing is really helpful and rapid turnaround testing is really helpful. Have your policies for visitors in the hospital changed in the last two weeks? They have not. They have not. So uh, it's an isolating experience being in the ICU. Um, and uh, we understand that a family member might desperately want to be with their loved one, particularly when they're critically ill. But limiting that proximity, duration of time, um, in close proximity to a patient, and, um, and the issue of PPE, those things are all critically important. Um, what we have done is we've gotten smarter about making contact with families more real and more possible. So we have had um, daily phone calls from our doctors and nurses to patients' families to give them updates. Um, sometimes I will talk to a family two or three times a day uh, and to give them updates on change in status. We have um, used things like iPads and, uh, and cell phones to allow face-to-face um, -face communication and allow um, you know, the patient to hear a loved one's voice or to, hear, or to have them sing to them or, um, <laughs> or something like that. And, and that provides um, a, a world of comfort um, that would not exist were we not blessed to live in, in a society that has things like iPads or iPhones or yes. FaceTime or Skype or whatever. So we've gotten a little um, more clever about how we keep people in touch with, with uh, their family members. We heard a lot of concerns about whether or not we were going to overfill our capacity for ventilators and ICU beds. How full are you compared to your capacity and what do you know about other hospitals? So I, I can't really get into the numbers, but what I can tell you is that across our community, um, I'm, I'm really proud of the public, private, and individuals who have pitched in and helped out. It's a, it's a tremendous show of solidarity across hospital systems. We have three competing hospital systems in our community. We've uh, been on conference calls together. We've collaborated on strategies. Um, we've collaborated on treatment plans and all of those things to make sure that we have a community-wide response that shows solidarity with the patient. So we're prepared to take care of the patients that are in our ICU today and the ones that are going to come tomorrow and the day after that. Um, I, I feel really good about where we are currently. Um, the great boogeyman is, is this uh, term uh, rationing or resource allocation. And um, I think the efforts we've made up front 
are going to obviate the need for that. They're going to make those things unnecessary. So uh, in terms of capacity, I think we've been smart about our resources at our institution. We've uh, got several layers of plan, um, of planning so that we can draw on additional resources. And, and everybody has what's called a surge plan. So if, if things really um, become biblically awful, we have a plan to cope and to help each other through it. And it's going to require all of us kind of going out of our comfort zones, doing things we're not accustomed to doing. Uh, but, but I think institutionally, um, we're prepared. And, and on a personal level, um, the providers I interact with, other doctors, nurses, um, respiratory therapists, on down the line, the people who clean the rooms, the people who deliver the food, have thought through this. Um, and so nobody's flying blind. Um, so I think, I think the listeners should have confidence um, that there have been a lot of people who have spent a lot of time um, and had a lot of sleepless nights on ways to take care of patients very well and very safely. My, imp my impression is that there's far more capacity available than we thought there was going to be a month ago because of certain doomsday scenarios. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, I think a lot of our prediction, you know, uh, and, and, um, and our fears were based on, on models that excessively weight experiences that are not the same as ours. So, so the IHME model is, is largely based on uh, the experience in China and Italy, right. um, which is very, very different than, than our experiences in the Midwest, for example. And so there was a lot of, um, a, a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of uh, meticulous preparation. And, and based on what we did, uh, what we saw at the time, none of that is regrettable. Um, but now um, we can look at the situation with, and, and be a little more clear-headed. Um, we can use our senses and, and understand our own communities and our own institutions' experiences and say, okay, we are prepared and we can handle this. And, and so I, th I think that you're right. Um, there's, I, I sense, you know, compared to two weeks ago, there's a lot less panic. There's a lot more sense of, of real competence and preparedness. Gotcha. You know, Eustace, one of the big things that everybody's asking about, you know, is this idea of being over the hump. <laughs> we have the national numbers that are somewhat encouraging that, that we may be crescendoing here. Do you feel like there's going to be parts of the country that crescendo later? Are we going to all be over the hump together? Uh, what, what have you seen at your hospital? Do you have any ideas on this? Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to crescendo at the same time. I mean, I think um, hotspots are, are, have a rapid acceleration and have uh, some have reached crescendo um, before us. So New York City is probably an example of that. Um, whereas a community um, like ours, which is smaller Midwestern community, we're probably going to see more of a kind of a slow burn where we're going to have to be constantly vigilant about it. And I don't think that we um, can uh, breathe an entire sigh of relief, but, but maybe, maybe a little bit of a, a, a respite from hypervigilance. Um, but this is always going to be on our radar. Um, from Eustace, isn't this what we were after three weeks ago, flattening the curve? I've looked at the curves. They look flat. They're not steep up and down. They look like they went up, and now they're flat for a while. Wasn't this our goal three weeks ago? I, I, do, think that, I do think that that was the goal, is to, not, is to not eliminate the disease because we can't do that, but to mitigate. Um, so to not have every sick patient in every 
hospital bed and on every ventilator that we have available all at once. I think that was the great fear. And, and that was born out of a fear of looking at, uh, at particularly, I think, at, at Italy's experience. Yes. So, so in, in terms of that, I think it's, it's sort of a, um, a, a job well done, but I think it begs other questions like what, what happens next? Um, how do you, how do you re-enter uh, normal life. And, and I don't mean like going to restaurants and, and amusement parks and things like that, but how do you enter life in the hospital? How do you do, uh, get back to doing uh, scheduled procedures, you know, a knee replacement or colonoscopy that needs to be done? Or in, in my world as a lung specialist, a bronchoscopy that, that maybe isn't absolutely an emergency, but it's urgent and it might change what happens to the patient long-term. So now that the curve is flattened, I think the, the next question is what happens next? How do we roll back into, into um, something that looks like the pre-COVID era? Do you have any suggestions? Well, I think we have to have um, continuous discussions with our patients. So um, one, of, uh, one of my cardiologist friends, um, Dr. Chilla Kamari, he um, touches base with his patients who had planned procedures every 10 days. And he's doing this by telemedicine. And when he does this, he makes sure that nothing has changed and that we don't need to move them from a urgent but not emergent status. Um, and he makes sure that they're doing okay and that the patient knows that he hasn't forgotten about them. So, so I think doing things like that, doing constant reassessments, whether it's done electronically or with a phone call, a telehealth visit, um, is important to do. I think, again, we would preferentially, be, in my opinion, begin to roll back procedures and things like that. On We would begin to enter into those with patients who are lower risk for severe disease. So patients without comorbidities, patients of younger age, et cetera, and, and kind of see how that goes. So I don't think it's going to be an all or nothing. I don't think we're going to turn a light switch and suddenly be back to where we were before. I think it's going to have to be a slow, judicious rollback into into normal care. Eustace, you had mentioned all these different things that we're doing to combat this. Do you feel like the, the atmosphere in, in your ICU and in your hospital has changed from more, you know, a couple of weeks ago, everybody was kind of fearing the worst. Is, is confidence building that we really have ways to take care of all of this? Yeah, I think that's true, Andrew. I mean, I think, I think the things that I've noticed is, is, solidarity among healthcare workers, um, just among my partners. And I have 11 different partners. I've learned from every single one of them. Um, we have created a, an environment, um, whether it's a message board or a group chat or whatever, where we can share ideas, where we can teach each other, where we can learn from each other's experiences, how to do some of those things. And that strengthened our medical community within the uh, ICU itself, doing that ICU work when we have to prone someone by hand, so manually flip them over onto their belly. You have respiratory therapists, a doctor, um, usually two nurses and two techs helping get that done. So you're elbow to elbow, uh, getting your hands dirty, working for the patient together. And that, you know, those kinds of things uh, build confidence and, and, and build um, your, your, uh, hope that you're not alone in it. You know, you're confirmed in that feeling that you're supported by the medical community. Um, the local community, you know, that we've had um, an enormous outpouring from the local community of people who we've never met 
even from families of patients that we've lost in the COVID unit, send meals um, for the nurses uh, and the staff to make sure that, that they're taken care of. And, um, and you know, we, we talk about this time as being something big, bad, and miserable, which it is. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there have been some really beautiful moments um, of community solidarity and solidarity among healthcare workers and, um, and building of authentic friendships, which, um, which always involves, you know, seeking the truth and charity with one another. So Eustace, there has been a fair amount of hysteria out there. You've already given us multiple signs of hope and good that have come out of this. What else do you want people to know who may have more of a tendency to panic when they hear the, the bad news? So what I would say, um, and this is speaking as a Catholic physician, is that COVID-19 is not the master of our lives. Jesus Christ is the master of our lives. And we need to cling to Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and always, right? So it always gives me comfort um, as I go in uh, to work. Um, I am usually praying my Divine Mercy Chaplet and understanding, reassuring myself that um, the same God exists who was before COVID-19 and has existed for all eternity. And that God is a loving God who has every day of my life, every beat of my heart thought out. And, and I think that for those who are afraid of this, um, I think you just have to do the, be- do the best you can to turn it over uh, to the Lord and, and ask the Lord to strengthen you, to love you through it, uh, to give you hope um, when, when things seem hopeless and to, uh, and to squash that, that great enemy of, of, our, of our peace, which is anxiety. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be prudent. It doesn't mean that we uh, shouldn't take real precautions. Um, but we have to know in the end that, that God handles all of this and, and he willed us into existence out of love, not so that we should suffer. And he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, uh, to, to show us uh, the way back to the Father's house. So I think those are the things that I think about um, when, when fear and anxiety creep up, and, and they creep up. You know, it's a cycle. You know, I, I, tell, I tell my friends and coworkers that I have about 30 to 45 minutes where I'm completely irrational and panicked. And, <laughs> and I have to go, I have to go, uh, I have to go back to the Lord. And I say, well, I'd rather be on that boat with you being tossed around with the Lord asleep on the boat than anywhere else in the world. And, and, then, and then I get back to being able to use my brain and the <laughs> gifts God has given me to try and help others and, and, and try and be a good person. Eustace, this has been another phenomenal interview. I hope you'll come back with us again in a couple of weeks to give us an update. But uh, people love what you have to say. You've got the true frontline experience. Thanks for being part of Dr. Doctor. Well, Thank thanks, you. Tom. Thanks, Andrew. God bless you guys. Yep. And, and, and thanks, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please, please 
please, please share the good news <laughs> of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.